to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch, and welcome to the latest episode of the Construction Big Breakfast podcast. Today, we're going to be diving into some really interesting topics, including the forthcoming trade infrastructure report. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, telemetry and construction and where there may be some risks. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about or reminisce a little bit about my time in Mexico City many, many years ago. Joining me today on the podcast is our very special guest, Carlo Day. Welcome to podcast, Carlo. And can you give our listeners a very short introduction to yourself? Well, Tim, thanks for having me. It's great to be back in London, if only virtually. So I'm a dual Canadian U.S. citizen, been in Canada for a couple decades, um, started my career at the World Bank, uh, working the Latin American technical region, worked for the U.S. government running a um, foreign development program, a grant program, a, an independent agency of the U.S. government in the Caribbean, and uh, came up to Canada, run Canada's Latin American think tank, heavily involved in trade issues because the Harper government at the time was aggressively opening trade negotiations in Latin America. And I've taken that trade experience to Western Canada, where I advocate for the interest of the four Western provinces, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and good old Manitoba, um, to make sure that Western interests are represented not just in Ottawa, but in Washington, D.C., Tokyo, and Mexico City, our third NAFTA partner. Terrific. We're going to dive into that and a few other topics. Uh, but of course, Carlo, if you've done any homework at all, you'll know what the next question is. So, Carlo, it's great to have you on today. And the first question is, of course, what did you have for breakfast today? So, having seen the show before, I actually <laughs> brought it with me. So I, I'm not a breakfast person, but there's a company in Calgary, a little you know home business, yep. and they make these energy bites, peanut butter, chocolate pretzel bites. And so I have these in the morning. And then since I'm in the office, my colleagues ah. bring their dogs to the office. We're a dog-friendly office. So I don't eat uh, dog treats, dog but these are Canadian dog treats. You can see they're poutine. Routine. Dog treats for the Canadian dogs running around the office. So the dogs get a dog treat in the morning and I get an energy bite. Well, we're going to come back to poutine in a minute because, of course, for my British viewers, they won't know what poutine is. So I'll come back to that in a minute. I'll just see what I had. Uh, I had a homemade sausage, egg and cheese muffin for breakfast. We've got into that in our household. But just to get back to poutine. Because the first time I'd ever heard of it was when uh, I was on holiday in Whistler about four years ago. And uh, of course, it arrives. And so that's chips and gravy, plus one additional ingredient, which is the curd cheese, which is unheard of. Chips and gravy, British culture, particularly in the northern part of the country. Uh, and uh, very well loved it is, of course. But to put curds on it. That's where Britain and Canada, we divert a bit in our culture. Oh, no, it's not just curds. In Atlantic Canada, it's lobster. In Quebec, it's foie gras. 
So no, it's just a platform upon which you. It's a platform. We're going to be talking about platforms later, uh, technological platforms rather than culinary ones. But anyway, it's great to have you on, Carlo. I know we're going to have a very interesting uh, talk today. So the, when we met, we met in Vancouver face to face a couple of weeks ago at the Canadian Construction Association annual conference, which thank goodness is back face to face after a, uh, an imposed hiatus because of the uh, pandemic. Yeah, and, it was great. Uh, and it was, uh, I came back full of energy and it was just great to be back in the meeting people. And of course, whilst we were there, the whole mask wearing thing dropped in British Columbia. So it was really great. But you gave uh, a fascinating, in fact, you did two talks, but the, the one that uh, really, I think our, in, our viewers would be most interested in is this whole uh, piece of research you've done on trade infrastructure and some of the constraints that there are in Canada and some of the research you've done about it, because I know you came to the UK to talk to some of our people about possible solutions. Right. So this has been a eight year research project at the Canada West Foundation. Obviously, exports are important, but for, for, for most countries, but for Canada in particular, two thirds of our country's GDP comes from exports. Uh, if you go down to the States, it's about 20%, 20-ish percent. Even in Australia, it's only 44, 45%. So moving goods in and out of the country is critically important for Canada, uh, more so than the Aussies or the Americans. But here in Western Canada, it's even more important, uh, especially for the Prairie Provinces. So you take Alberta, 30-some percent of our GDP in this province come from exports. You cross the border to the state immediately to the south of us, Montana, and that figure drops to like 3.2%. So the whole focus on moving goods is important. But we've noticed that we've had problems internally that are fairly well known, I think. Um, rail problems with rail, problems with weather, problems with blockades from various groups. But there's a deeper underlying problem behind all of this in Canada. And that's the lack of the ability to have coherent national planning. We have a country with integrated supply and production chains that stretch across the country, that stretch down to the U.S. Yet we don't have a handle on how these work, and we certainly don't have a handle to build infrastructure that works within the whole system. As elsewhere, you know, the, the, the infrastructure file has become politicized. Um, politicians in need of photo ops, politicians or parties who need to assure that a riding, uh, a bridge gets built in a riding or something gets built in a riding, um, weighs against the needs of industry, weighs against the needs of the larger economy, weighs against the needs of those who use the integrated supply and production chains. So we spent eight years looking at solutions from Canada's past and looking at solutions from the Aussies and uh, having conversations with infrastructure groups in the UK as to how we get a handle on this. The last bit on this is, you know, international surveys, rankings of a country's transport infrastructure have shown Canada's rankings to be cratering. The World Economic Forum ranking of a survey of users in Canada has seen Canada drop from the top 10 down to 32nd globally. Um, in the U.S., you see a two-point drop from 11th to 13th, 
and you can't get President Biden or Secretary Buttigieg to shut up about a two-point drop. In Canada, we've dropped 20 points, and there's no one talking about this or mentioning it. So that's really troubling on our end. Why do you think that this hasn't been picked up by the political community? Um, that, well, it's the, there are other issues that are, are of greater concern uh, politically at the moment. The social agenda, the green agenda, dealing with the transformation. Understandable that those issues uh, rank up there, but there's just something about Canada. Um, you know, some people refer to Canada as a middle power. Uh, the joke that we make is that Canada is actually a muddle power, not a middle power. We can muddle through. If you're stuck between the United States and the North Pole with a giant ocean on either side, privileged, easy access to the largest, fattest, richest market on the planet, you don't have to worry about things the way, say, the Aussies do in terms of having to deal with moving goods to Asia or the way the UK does in terms of its relations with Europe and, uh, and its attempt to return to global power. So I think that has let us get complacent um, in Canada and let the issue slip. D, I know obviously you've got this report coming out uh, in a, a few weeks time. Well, no, we will publish this just after it's coming out. So, it's, oh, it's just coming out. Um, and I mean, is your expectation that this will get traction, that it's going to influence? Is it going to influence the politicians directly or is this going to be a wake up call to the other stakeholders to start rattling the cage a bit? So there's a copy of the uh, of the report uh, for your viewers. Uh, I guess when this comes out, they'll be able to get it online. But we do expect it to move the political discussion. We're putting a great deal of emphasis on reframing the political discourse and the public discourse around infrastructure. And to get to that complacency I mentioned, part of the move is to, you know, make the public aware of the problems inherent in the current way that infrastructure projects, specifically transport infrastructure, trade infrastructure, are financed. And that's the move from shovel-ready to shovel-worthy. We've lapsed, I think, globally into a discourse and an acceptance of a discourse that says funding something simply because it's ready in an emergency is a good and acceptable thing. But funding something that's shovel-ready, uh, as we argue in the paper, is starting with an admission of failure, an admission that the government and industry will not or cannot do what's necessary for infrastructure, invest in things for return on investment, invest because of, uh, for needs for the national transportation system, invest for strategic reasons, so you're admitting that you're not going to do this and instead you're going to invest in something simply because it's lying around and happens to be ready to go. I think from a common sense perspective, any listener, any consumer, any voter hearing this is going to suddenly realize that this, this makes no sense, especially when one can do better, especially when countries like Australia and the UK are doing better and Canada in its past has done better as well. So this is the, the, the big push. And let me note that if you 
do the research, if you do the analysis of projects and you have a pipeline of projects, even when the crisis like COVID hits or the financial crisis hits, you're accelerating things in the pipeline, that things that make sense for the national context, as opposed to running around looking for looking for something desperately, desperately to fund. So even in times of crisis, shovel ready does not make sense when you can do shovel worthy. So we're trying to reset the discourse in Canada to to bring this to the forefront. And from a common sense perspective, voters don't want their money wasted. And if you can make the argument that we're not getting maximum value from public dollars, and it's easy and possible to get that maximum value from public uh, for public money, that should be a winning argument. I absolutely agree. And of course, you've got these other strategic drivers, the economic imperative that, that the infrastructure has declined in terms of what the other rest of the world thinks about it. And you're such a massive net exporter. I mean, speaking as someone yeah. on the other side of the pond, it sounds bonkers. But uh, if, if you depend if you depend on moving goods for a living and your customers are telling you that they don't think you can move goods, you have a problem. You do, yes. And this this lack of strategic planning is is this an institutional thing? Are you lacking the 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 cross provincial institutions to plan and promote these uh, projects? Is that, is, that, is, certainly, is that part of the problem? So that certainly is part of the issue. Um, I should note that the lead author on the report, so I'm the 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 um, the organizer of the research, but our lead author, John Law, was deputy minister for transport and highway or infrastructure and highways in Saskatchewan and chair of the Council of Deputy Ministers, uh, the National Council of Deputy Ministers in Canada. So, you know, that that experience in terms of wrestling between the provinces and the federal government certainly is is central to this. But on the issue of capacity, it's not just the territorial issues, municipal, provincial, federal, but it's also just the lack of capacity in government and the lack of knowledge in government. The private sector, and you've gone through this in the UK and the Aussies have, the private sector where trade infrastructure is concerned, the private sector has unique and often proprietary information on supply chains on movement of goods. They have unique information to know how an investment in a road a grade separation, a rail crossing, or a new roundabout, or new port facilities will impact the wider system. So one major issue in Canada has been the lack of the ability to have the private sector at the table in a meaningful way. Again, we're not talking about building your kid's school or a hospital or your neighborhood park. We're talking about infrastructure assets where the private sector is the primary user, owner, or operator of the assets. And we really haven't had the ability to bring them in in a meaningful, sustained way to take advantage and to leverage that knowledge to improve decision making. You can't do shovel worthy for trade infrastructure unless the private sector is at the table playing a role. No, I'm absolutely 100% agree with you. and it, it's, I mean, we won't know this, but I mean, I, uh, my academic background was in exactly this sort of uh, 
work looking at uh, a particular management paradigm that was developed at UCL in London called the management of projects, which is all about doing the right project and then doing it well. And of course, doing the right projects is around. It can it can be about value. It can be about all of the other pressures that you've got to make the right decision. And some of them are internal to the organisation, and some of them are obviously all the external ones that we all the management consultants know about the pestle forces. And it, it's a balance of those that helps you choose the right one at the right time, isn't it? And you know, the, as I'm sure you're aware in the UK, we've now got a pipeline of those sorts of projects in various sectors, certainly transport, rail, road. Ports in the UK is almost entirely private sector, but that isn't a problem. They are, they look after themselves in a way. But the, um, the other things which are either government owned or quasi government owned, there are proper plans in place um, for those sorts of things. So A, it means that you're more likely to get the correct project done and the supply chain can organise itself to deliver it because they get forced up to this. And of course, these are updated every six months or so, but the, right. it gives you an idea of volume, the type of work you're going to be doing, and therefore you should get even better value then because people can organise themselves to deliver it. Exactly. I think it also helps with public confidence for, for the industry. You know, there you always worry about nimbyism and voters not wanting to spend money and the list of the, the, the public concerns and the public facing concerns is long. But a process that's understood to be more rational, a process that's understood to use data. And uh, one of the major recommendations in our report is that we need to use trade modeling data. And so we've, at Canada West, we've modeled or had an academic working with us at Waterloo University, modeled the impact of the CPTPP trade agreement on Canada's infrastructure. Uh, and using this as a way to show that you can increase public confidence that decisions are based on data. Um, and actually, that's a, an important point too. The political process is going to be part of this process. So there is some pie in the sky thinking that you can just remove the politics from this. But our thinking is that you just need to move the place of politics in the in the process. So the pipeline of projects is a place for the political mechanisms to make judgments about what's in the pipeline, but not judgments about what goes into the pipeline. So what the Aussies did was set it up so that the government the process to determine the pipeline was set with industry and officials, and then the political element um, could only spend national money on things that were in the pipeline. So they didn't have to fund things if they disagreed and didn't yes. want to fund something, they didn't have to, but they couldn't use infrastructure or set aside national infrastructure money to fund something that wasn't in the pipeline. So dealing with the role of politics, um, is something that we've spent some time thinking about more recently. And the major tension we've had when we first proposed this to the government back under the previous government, the Harper government, um, the response was, yeah, that's nice, but we're not Australia. We're never going to do that. Uh, Prime Minister Harper comes back from attending a G20 meeting in Australia 
where the Aussies were talking about infrastructure, Australia, and how they had their act together on trade infrastructure, and UK and other countries were talking about it. And the response we got from the government was, that idea you had for like improving trade infrastructures, it's still lying around. And I'm like, the one you laughed out of the room? It's like, no, 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 no. So we've seen that movement, but in each case, Australia, the UK, dealing with politics has been important uh, in this process. Yeah, it has. Now, that's been a tremendous discussion. We've got a few minutes left, Carla. I just wanted very quickly, we touched, we teased our listeners at the start around the connection or the risk posed by what's happening in the agriculture industry sector and how that potentially needs to be thought about for construction. So you just want to outline what your thinking has been on that. Sure. So obviously the prairies are an agricultural powerhouse. Uh, and one of the issues we're hearing from agricultural communities are concerns about tractors and combines, which essentially have become digital platforms as opposed to just machinery. So they've increased efficiency on, on farms, they've increased agricultural output, but at the same time, the manufacturers have been able to lock down access to the digital components. So it used to be as a farmer, if something went wrong, you hopped off the tractor, you grabbed a hammer and a wrench and you took care of it. But now you're getting messages and the equipment is shutting down. So the manufacturers have seen an increase in profitability from repairs, forcing farmers to only use the dealership um, yeah. Uh, and you know, not using the dealership voids of warranty, uh, or you simply just can't access it because the codes are locked. The other issue we have is access to information. These platforms are pulling off real-time data on what's planted and bushels per acre being harvested. So control of that data with these platforms is is another issue. And the third one is attachments, being able to take any attachment you want and add it to the tractor or the combine. If you don't have access to the digital system, you can't do that. So the question is, obviously, you can see the obvious issues for a lone farmer um, on his or her operation. But the question is, we're seeing this in mining. The mining industry is worried about this. And the question for the construction industry is, is this something that um, the construction industry should also be worried about? Should construction be talking to mining and especially to the agricultural community, I think there may be a common front um, as um, as this issue progresses. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've got a bit of knowledge of exactly what could happen because I, I, did, I was involved in a piece of research on a very large infrastructure project in London two or three years ago, where they collected all of the telemetry from all of the uh, machinery, which is there already, and it goes back to the manufacturer and they use it to monitor the engine and, you know, for servicing reasons. Because they were able to establish what the idle time was from this data, and it uh, was much higher. I mean, the rule of thumb is that construction plant on an inner city type construction plant, not a doing a road or something, is idle 50% of the time. It turns out it's 70%. And the other crazy thing that came out of it is when it's idle, the engine's still running. And I said, well, why? Surely the manufacturers of this plant, they're, they're massive organisations. They could have a little thing, clever thing that turns the engine off when it's idle. And the answer we got back was, well, it, no, they have. 
it does that but you can override it there's a it's actually defaults to that and you can override it with a knob and so why would anyone do that and then you find out you go and talk to the driver why are you turning it off and he said well i've been taught my entire life that if i'm sat in the cab and the engine's off i'm not ready to work and they won't sign my time sheet so there's a cultural thing that was destroying wow. it. It was extra wear and the co2 and all of that and it wasn't the driver was only doing what he'd been conditioned to do over 20 years of being told off Anyway, so there, there, there's a warning, really. Those that from the agricultural sector in Canada, possibly mining, that this could spread into the construction sector. I mean, people need to be aware of that. So, on that note, and, oh, and, and you're, you're better off in the EU. I'm not sure where the UK is, but the EU is way ahead of Canada and the US in terms of protecting the rights of farmers, uh, in terms of accessing equipment repairs and data so it's a bit different globally so you know if you're looking for shortcuts or worried the the eu has a good model i i shouldn't say the eu has a good anything in the uk should i we remember half of us voted to stay okay, just 48 percent of us so you know you <laughs> anyway carlo on that note uh let's wrap up this conversation i have to say it's been fun insightful and Obviously, thank you for joining me today. We in the show notes, Carlo. If you don't mind, we, we could put contact details for you. We'll also put a link to that report that's going to get published, so that uh, it's easily found. Um, so that 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 would be all taken care of. Um, so wonderful. So and to all of our listeners today, thank you for tuning in. Uh, to this episode of the Construction Big Breakfast. We have a new episode published usually every week, so click on the subscribe button, which uh, will be appearing there, and uh, turn on your notifications so you don't miss a single episode. And while you're at it, of course, we'd appreciate five-star reviews. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode today, please like it and share it, as that helps for us to reach more listeners. Um, if you're interested in being a guest, uh, on the podcast or looking to collaborate in other ways, visit our website, which is invent.com. That's two ends at the end. Uh, the link's in the description again and fill out the contact form so one of our team will be in touch. So see you next time. Thanks, Carlo. Bye. Want to learn more about how Invent can help your business maximize its bottom line? Head on over to www.invent.com and get in touch with our team today. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.